My name is Ian Boswell. I was a world tour professional cyclist for seven years. Skyrider from the USA is a fighter. Well, Ian Boswell is turning up the cranks. Also, the host of this fine podcast, Breakfast with Boz, being served by Wahoo. Breakfast with Boz podcast dives into the world of endurance sports, whether it's cycling, multi-sport, running, anything that inspires us to get out and move, we cover right here on Breakfast with Boz. Let's get cooking on Breakfast with Boz. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to Breakfast with Boz being served by Wahoo. I'm your host, Ian Boswell. Sitting over a delicious blueberry pie this morning. The peach and fall fondo is coming up, so my wife and I have been practicing our pie baking skills for the rest stop. My wife has been picking a lot of blueberries. Our freezer is stocked for the winter and next spring. So we threw a bunch of blueberries into this pie. Gretchen, how does this pie stack up compared to some of the other pies you've been baking? I haven't made very many blueberry pies in my life, so this one's pretty good. I would do it a little bit differently for the pie stop for the peach and fall fondo, but crust is awesome. Crust is good, and we'll have plenty of pies to test before the fall fondo. So we're going to get to these pies, and you're going to get to another episode of Breakfast with Boz being served by Wahoo. In the episode today, I am joined by Jack Thompson, a.k.a. Jack the Ultra Cyclist. He's been on the show before talking about different endurance feats that he has tackled. He shared a little bit about his struggle with mental health, and that led him to chasing down the Tour de France this year. He set off 10 days after the Tour de France left Brest with the goal of beating them to Paris. I won't divulge too much about how it went. So let's dive in to this week's episode and my conversation with Jack Thompson chasing down Tour de France Peloton. All righty, Jack Thompson, ultra cyclist. Once again, I think this may be your third time being on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. That's good to be back, man. How have you been? You said you uh, just came back from a little vacation out on Menorca, a little island in the Beliares. How do you say that? I think it's the Beliares. Beliares? Yeah, it's a small, a small Mallorca. How was how was uh, your time out there? It was good. It's the first time I've been to one of the one of the islands of of Spain, and didn't really know what to expect. But it actually reminded me a bit of being back home in Australia, just the beaches and the landscapes, and it was nice having come back from from France and a couple of days in Paris to, to get over there where it's obviously completely different and it's just quiet and the only real decisions we have to make is what beach you're going to go to and what you're going to eat for the day. So yeah, it was a welcome change. Avocado and toast and flat whites? Yeah, the coffee at the hotel was abysmal, so <laughs> just the avo on toast. Cool. Well, we're, we're going to talk about chasing, chasing the tour, which uh, I'm sure people have, have heard about and there's a film coming out soon. But before we talk about chasing down the Tour de France. Before you started off on this endeavor, you know, growing up as a kid and, and following cycling, you know, if you can think back to before you you left Brittany to to ride the tour course, what did the Tour de France mean to you then? You know, kind of being a, a yeah. young athlete and, you know, watching the race on TV and, you know, living in Girona and, you know, hanging out with people who have ridden it. What did the tour mean to you? I like my first sort of recollection of the tour was if I think back, like we were in a 
airport somewhere and I remember we were transiting and I would have been pretty young at the time but my dad was into cycling and you know we caught a glimpse of the tour from that year and I think it was the Armstrong and Ulrich days and you know it was sort of this like I remember my dad being excited to watch it and yeah that's I guess that's what got me interested in cycling to begin with but you know we'd sit up late at night in Australia because the obviously there's the time difference and you know we'd often watch the tour until one or two in the morning and it was always something that was you know so far-fetched as an Australian to wrap my mind around ever actually doing it or you know not that I actually rode the Tour de France but doing something around the Tour de France was always like a bit of a dream and so you know coming up with a concept and then having an opportunity to actually do that with Wahoo yeah it's pretty special sort of you know it's come full circle yeah well and just being in in France in the month of July it it you really don't understand what the Tour de France is until you're actually there in July and, and I'm sure you saw that you know there's times when I'm sure you're you know you were behind the tour and then you were ahead of the tour but you just like you see the energy around the event and what it means you know in France but even globally just how many people it it attracts yeah. so before we get too far into to all that I mean can you explain a little bit the concept of, of chasing the tour and I know we actually kind of briefly spoke on this last summer but obviously yeah. things were things were different then so you were able to get to it this year chasing the tour what what's the goal what's the mission you know t- distance time everything give it to me yeah so essentially the the concept of the amazing chase was you know the tour de france is a three-week bike race around france but what would happen if we put a bit of a spin on it so you know we sort of calculated how fast we thought the tour could be ridden and you know keeping in mind that it was an apples for apples comparison so where the tour rode i rode and where the tour transferred i transferred and i guess the idea was to try and ride the tour de france in half the time of the pro peloton and i worked out that i thought it was rideable in around 10 days and so we did exactly that we gave the tour de france peloton a 10-day head start and then I set off from, from Brest and essentially chased down the Tour de France peloton. So you're riding every day, I mean, the same, the same course as the Tour. And I think, I'm trying to think back to the one time I did it. I mean, were you able to follow the exact roads? There was never a time when they went on to a, you know, a toll road that you couldn't, you couldn't jump on. You were able to follow the entire course. It's funny you ask that because the only time I ran into an issue was on day one within the first five kilometers leaving Brest and I found myself on a motorway, like a big truck basically cut me off the side of the road and pulled over and hurled a whole lot of abuse at me in French. And I thought, you know, far out, like this is just the beginning. This can only get worse from here. But, you know, I actually didn't come into any other issues aside from that. It was just on that day one leaving from Brest. And, yeah, basically every other day I could ride exactly the roads that the that the tour rode on. And, um I guess, yeah, we'll probably get into it later, but one of the things that you sort of don't realise on watching it on TV is that a lot of the roads that the the tour sort of races along are major roads, and so when the roads are actually open again, it's actually not the best roads to be riding on just in terms of traffic and a lack of shoulder, but I guess this was all part of the adventure and there were days where I I certainly didn't feel 100% safe on the road, which, yeah, with a little bit of sleep deprivation made things interesting, but I I guess that was all all part of the adventure. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that people probably don't realize is the tour has so much influence that they can go 
essentially wherever they want. And, you know, to the point where the race even, you know, takes out road furniture for the event. And I'm sure, especially early on, they'd put that road furniture back in the road before you had passed. That was one of the weirdest things, actually, because like, to begin with, I didn't really piece I didn't piece it together and I thought, there's so many roadworks near the end of the stages. And then one of the guys that was with us as part of the crew said, yeah, that's because, you know, they've, they've removed the furniture so that it's not dangerous when they sort of come into the final few kilometres. And that sort of put things into perspective a bit that, you know, these towns and these cities, they a lot of work goes into putting the Tour de France on and it's sort of cool to see, you know, a whole country get behind an event like this. Yeah, well, and that's one thing that, you know, there was a lot of crashes. I'm not sure how much of the early stages you watched, but, you know, crashes in the finales and, you know, it is becoming more stressful in the Peloton, but in the eight years that I lived in in Nice, the amount of just road furniture and infrastructure they put into slow traffic down has made it far more dangerous for races. You know, they're not building, you know, chicanes or roundabouts or, you know, bollards in the middle of the road for for the Tour de France, they're building it to slow traffic down. So yeah. it can be, there can be a lot of pinch points. For sure. Well, what was the total distance that you rode in the end? The total distance was, oh, I should forget, off the top of my head, it was 3,550 odd kilometers. And there was, I think it was 52,000 meters of climbing. So there's wow. a fair way of climbing in there. This was like, from what I've heard, this was one of the hillier years of the, the tour in history. And yeah, the, the legs definitely felt that. Well, and one of the things that you probably realized, and I'm, I'm curious how you did this, was you know the transfers between the stages because you know because you're not in a peloton, you didn't have 200 people you know pulling you along. You're riding them the stages by yourself, so you're probably taking more time every day. You know, leaving at sunrise, arriving you know sometimes late in the evening. You know, what was the kind of your protocol for you know recovery and transfers just to make sure that you you know, we're ready for the next day, but also that, you, yeah. you know, got got to everywhere you needed to go on time. Yeah. So I think it's worth saying that, I guess, to ride the Tour de France in half the time of the Peloton meant, meant that I had to ride essentially two stages a day. And some days it was two and a half, other days it was one and a half, just depending on how much, how long each stage was. And so on average, there was around three hours of transfers every day. And sometimes the transfer would happen, I guess, in the middle of the stage where you're transferring from one stage to the next, or you might have half of that between stages. And then you might have another transfer at the end of the day if you're driving to the beginning of the next stage. And coming into the, this event, it was I was nervous about the transfers because I didn't really know what to expect. In my mind, I thought, you know, this will be great. I'll get to jump in the car and I can eat something and I can relax. And, you know, I thought it would be time to actually recover. But looking back on it now, it was almost the opposite because, you know, you imagine you've ridden 150, 200 kilometers. You're sort of warm. You're in a good sort of eating pattern. Everything's going well. And then you've got to stop and you've got to get in a car and you cool down. And it wasn't, I guess, an enjoyable sort of atmosphere in the car because the guys in the car are rushing to get you to the next stage because the clock's ticking. And so I almost felt in the car that I was, you know, I was stressed in the car because I was conscious that, you know, I had to have my next set of clothes on because it had been raining for six or seven hours and I had to charge the the Wahoo and I had to have the food and things ready. And I actually felt like the time in the car was really difficult. And it meant that it was, you know, two or three hours every day where I wasn't able to ride. And I think that that was something I overlooked coming into the event. I thought, you know, this will be great. I'll get to relax. Where in hindsight, yeah, it was super stressful. And it meant that I had to warm up every time I got back on the bike and I had to find my rhythm again. And getting out of the 
out of the car and knowing you've had another 200 kilometers to do when you're, when you're cool and the sun's setting is, yeah, it's difficult mentally. Yeah. Well, that's one thing that I've noticed getting older is stopping becomes harder to get going again, especially if you've just done, you know, 200 K. It's not like you stop for a coffee shop on a, you know, 100 K ride and you get going again, you know, especially day in, day out, you know, your body yeah. really does become accustomed to just moving. And once you stop, it seems like things kind of, kind of shut down. Exactly. So what was your nutrition plan? I mean, on the transfers, if you had three hours, were you eating a full meal? Or were you just trying to keep it simple? I mean, that's one of the great things about riding around France is you have all these bakeries and, you know, great food everywhere, but probably the last thing you wanted to eat in, in a transfer was like a beef bourguignon before riding another 200K. Yeah. It's, it was really interesting because to begin with, I had like a fueling strategy and we worked really hard on developing that fueling strategy in conjunction with using the super savings device leading into the event. And that like the protocol we used was essentially most of the calories were coming from liquids. So I was using a mix between like a, I don't know how you describe it. Like I call it almost like hospital complete meal shakes. So it's like if you couldn't eat for whatever reason and you could only drink these Chocolate shakes would basically give you all the carbohydrate, all the protein, all the fats and all the minerals you needed so you could survive on it if you had to. So I was mixing them in one bottle and then in the other bottle I had like a pretty standard sort of glucose fructose mix. And I would say, yeah, I was getting around 80% of my calories from that and the other 20% was from food just to ensure that you know the body was still sort of operating like normal. We found... Getting in the car in between the stages, like while like the idea of like a proper meal in theory sounded really good. When I got into the car and I was sort of hot and I was cooling down, I didn't really feel like eating at this stage. And so I tried to sort of keep the the foods pretty constant. So I'd be eating yogurt with nuts and just trying to keep the sort of higher calorie foods coming in. And yeah, it meant that I wasn't really getting a proper meal until I finished for the day. And when I say proper meal, it was like two minute noodles with yeah, some olive oil and like a sauce in it. Like it wasn't great nutrition, but it was, you know, kept me kept me fueled. And on a couple of the days, you know, Macca's was the was the fuel of choice, just down to the simple fact that I needed calories and, you know, I wasn't getting them elsewhere, so I had to eat McDonald's just to get the calories in. But what we found was that throughout the event on around day five, so the midway point, my cravings actually changed from wanting sugary foods to actually wanting fatty foods. And so we sort of still stuck to that principle of using the liquids, but rather than eating, I guess, you know, sugary foods as the actual food source, I started eating, yeah, fat. So it was croissants with with butter and, yeah, like, what do you call them? Like, it's almost like chorizo, what we call it. Like in, in Spain, they call, it's called like fuet. So I was eating, yeah, just just fat. Yeah. And what was interesting is that the, the blood glucose sort of stayed pretty constant whether I was eating the sugar or whether I was eating the fat. And I think that was really interesting because it meant, you know, looking back now, there's some things for us to play with for future projects and yeah, it gives us something a little bit more to experiment with. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially in these, well, you are the ultra cyclist. So in the, in these ultra events, I mean, and you probably realize this and already knew this, but your fueling is such an important part of it. And, you know, like you yeah. said, you go in with a strategy, I'm going to have this and like, you know, in, in training, this is what I eat. And then you get three days in and you're like, Oh, I can't, I need something salty yeah. you know, and, it, and it completely <laughs> changes. So, I mean, having, you know, the ability to satisfy what your body needs is, is so crucial. And I guess you'd mentioned, you know, using something like Super Sapiens to, to monitor your glucose. It is interesting that, you know, we have technology like that now to 
kind of understand what is actually happening in the body. And it's, it's interesting to see that, you know, your body had a very similar response between both kind of almost, you know, similar but different fuel sources. Was that something you were using, you know, daily just to check in to make sure that really you were making sure you're getting enough enough food in you. Yeah. So basically every day the metrics I was checking on the Super Sapiens was what my average glucose for the for the actual time on the bike was. And then seeing how much time I spent sort of below the the target ranges. Just to make sure that, you know, coming into the next day I still had enough like fuel or glycogen in the muscles to continue performing. And like, yeah, it's super interesting to see that I was expecting that throughout the event the the glucose, average glucose would drop. And it actually stayed pretty constant through the 10 days. So yeah, it's super interesting stuff and something I want to get my head around even more in the coming coming months and years. Well, kind of along that line, I'm curious, and I saw some photos of, of you out there. I mean, and your equipment that you used was relatively standard to what you would use on any, any ride. I mean, nothing super special on the bike that that was different than you would have on if you were going out for a ride today. Yeah, look, you're, you're on the specialized bikes as well and you're on, on the Roubaix and you probably agree like the future shock in the Roubaix for the long distance stuff like it just takes so much road buzz out of your hands and just out of your body and I find the the Roubaix such a fast bike I don't see any disadvantage in using that bike for an event like this it's just all advantages in my point of view so yeah stuck with the Roubaix and yeah we had a range of different clothing from Velocio that you know the stuff that I train in throughout the year and I was actually lucky I took so much winter gear with me. I sort of second-guessed myself when I was packing and I thought, you know, do I really need two rain jackets in summer? And I was just so lucky I took it because we had rain, I'd say, eight out of the 10 days it rained and it rained for like 70 or 80% of the time on the bike. It was, I couldn't believe it. Like I thought I'd come home with tan lines and I almost came home whiter than when I left. So that was a big surprise and, yeah, just lucky to have good equipment to to see me through and we had some like custom custom helmet custom helmet from triple b which yeah shared like an important mental health message that it's okay not to be okay and we had that in six different languages so yeah that was pretty special and then obviously the the wahoo bolt computer just yeah the battery life on that thing and just the ease of use was something that's pretty important for for long days so super happy to have good partners to work with. Well, I'm curious as to, you know, you said you packed up and you did have a car, you know, meet you at, at the transfers. How much kit did you bring? Were you doing laundry on tour? Because I mean, that's, that's a huge issue. And you think when you're, when you're on a yeah. big team, you know, you give, you know, you leave a laundry bag outside your hotel room, you come back from dinner and there's a, you know, clean kit in the laundry yeah. bag, but you didn't have that, that luxury. How were you? I mean, cause you couldn't possibly, I mean, I guess you could bring 10 kits, but that's a lot of kit to bring with you. I honestly, I brought 10 kits, right? Because I thought, all right, I'm gonna, I want to wear a different kit every day because, you know, it's, it's a good way to sort of, you know, wear a full range of clothing. And with the rain, what it meant was that I was changing into a second set of clothing for sort of the afternoon shift or the second stage for the day, which meant that after five days, I actually had no fresh kit. And yeah, it became a bit of an issue because it was trying to find like the least dirty kit to wear for the next stage. And we were lucky that Zippy... One of the, um, well, my coach and one of the guys that was in the car with me is pretty handy at sort of MacGyvering things. And yeah, he was hand washing things in the little shower in the back of the RV. And yeah, it definitely wasn't a deluxe laundry service, but yeah, I had relatively clean kit day after day. Well, and I'm also in, in similar line, curious about your bike, because, you know, if you are riding in rain 
every day. And, you know, I don't know the actual lifespan of, you know, a chain brake pads, but you know, yeah. if you're on a world tour team and you go through a tour de France, you're going to go through a lot of brake pads and probably multiple chains. Did you bring spare equipment as well? So you could kind of refresh your, your group set and I mean, even potentially tires. Did you have any flat tires or was that smooth sailing? So yeah, that is a really good question. I didn't change chains at all. I changed one set of brake pads on the front and the rear pads I literally still have in the bike today. Yeah. I'd taken two spare sets because I thought, you know, even in dry conditions, just with the amount of climbing and descending, surely I'll go through them, but they somehow lasted, which baffles me a little bit. And then tires. So I was super lucky with tires. I'm using Bit of a prototype specialized tire. And I had one puncture in the whole three and a half thousand kilometers. And that was on the one sort of sunny day we had. So yeah, really happy with how things performed. And I think the puncture was bad luck, just a big bit of glass and the, the sealant wouldn't seal. But yeah, I went in with a whole lot of spares thinking I'd need to use them and came out with a whole lot of spares still sitting in the box. Well, was the flat tire your low point? I'm sure. I mean, I saw some of your photos and you did just get drenched with rain. I mean, I think up in Andorra as well, you were, you know, it's cold yeah. in there as well. I mean, what was the the absolute low point? Was there ever a point when you thought, I'm not going to make it? Or, hey, can we just take a, an afternoon off and just take a, take a <laughs> chill day and take a long nap and we'll get to it tomorrow? Or, you know, were you yeah. motivated and driven enough that you're just like, all right, here's the plan. It's 10 days. Let's just hammer it out. There, were, there was never a point where I thought, oh, I'm not going to make this. But there were definitely low points. So it was funny. The Probably the lowest point was the day we climbed Von 2. So... We'd done an extra 70 kilometers the day before and we hadn't finished until around three or four in the morning. So I'd done 420k the day before and there was a fair whack of climbing in there. I woke up the next morning and probably didn't eat enough and then proceeded to make my way over to Von 2 and, and try and climb that twice. And it was the one really hot day that we had. So it went from sort of rain the day before and I was in full winter kit to 37 degrees and, and sun. And I think that was a bit of an adjustment for the body to make. And I felt like I was crawling up Ventoux and I knew that the the following days there was more and more climbing. And she had a bit of a knee niggle because I, I don't know, if probably a bit of a silly decision, but just with the amount of rain, I was getting a little bit of chafe just from the sand off the road in my chamois. And so I thought if I pull my seat forward a little bit, I might be able to find a different position and you know, what that did was it just really loaded up my my quads and I normally run quite a bit of setback and bringing it forward, I was then using different muscles and, yeah, climbing on two with sore knees just wasn't a real good start to the day and I thought, you know, it was around that five, the fifth day and a halfway point and, yeah, it's always a difficult part because you're, you're not quite the halfway, you're sort of, you know, you still got a long way to go and, yeah, I think mentally it was... That was a really difficult day, but yeah, you know, I woke up the next morning not really knowing what to expect, and I had a bit of a tailwind, and yeah, things came came good again. And I think the key to the story, what I learned in this instance, was you know you just sort of keep on pushing, keep working through it. There is always a positive at the end, and I think the next day for me sort of reaffirmed that. Yeah, I mean, it is crazy how you can just feel like you're so destroyed, and then wake up the next day and be like all right, let's do it again. <laughs> you know, yes. a few hours of sleep and you're just... I think what hurt with Von 2 was, you know, for anyone that's ever ridden Von 2, it, well, for those that haven't probably, like the best way for me to describe it is it's like if you went to a ski resort, it's almost like a summer wonderland and there's there's people of like all ages and all abilities and you know, all different 
types of bikes. Some are old, some are new, and everyone's just there having a good time. And it's a really nice vibe, but it's almost a little bit demoralizing when you've got people sort of racing past you. And yeah, this was like, for me, it was like, oh my God, I'm going so bad. There's people just passing me left, right and center. And yeah, at the same time, it was a lot of fun because again, you know, I finally had something to sort of look at, some people to interact with. So there was good and bad in it. Well, was there a sense of, you know, as you were coming up on the tour and, you know, eventually you, you passed them and got ahead of them. So I, I assume there was like almost this build to like, you're getting closer and you can, you know, you enter a town and you're like, oh, I must be getting close because there's still signs up or there's still, you know, yeah. you know, did you get to a point where you're like, okay, I'm like on pace. I'm like, I'm almost in the Tour de France because you're riding, you know, at the same yeah. time, or, you know, you're, you know, a little bit behind them or a little bit ahead of them. Was that very apparent? Yeah, it was because as you say, like the, the towns, you know, at the beginning, there was still a little bit of decorations and things around and the painted bikes and things out on the road. But as you got closer, there was more and more of it. And that was cool to, it was exciting almost stumbling across that. And I guess, you know, every day coming into the finish of a particular stage, although I wasn't racing anyone, I was there alone. I almost felt like a kid in a candy store. Like, you know, I'm on the big stage now and I'm, you know, I was sort of envisaging, you know, if there were other guys there and I was sort of, you know, oh, this is the stage that Cav won or this is the stage that, you know, Ben O'Connor won. And, you know, it was it was really like a cool experience to sort of experience that just days after they'd been there. And I actually, I'd sort of lost track of where I was in terms of catching the race and the plan had always been to try and pass them on the second rest day in Andorra. And that was partly because, you know, if we didn't pass them on that day, it was going to be really hard to actually get in front of them with all the road closures and things that exist around the race. And I was on the phone to my parents while I was riding and they said, oh, you know, you're going to catch them tomorrow. And you know, I was like, no, not tomorrow. I think it's the next day. And they're like, no, 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 it's tomorrow. And yeah, at this point, it really... It almost gave me a second wind. It was like, wow, this is actually happening now. Like, I'm actually going to be in front. And then that rest day in Andorra, like, I caught up with a couple of the guys that I'm mates with here. And yeah, it was pretty special. And I actually had a bit of a tear in my eye sort of riding into Andorra because, you know, it, it's, this is a project that we've been sort of wanting to make happen for three years. And so to actually sort of realize that, you know, we've caught the race was, was special. And then, yeah, that afternoon, obviously I had the sort of second stage for the day. And what was, I guess, good and bad was that the cars that were with me, the sort of media cars and whatnot, they couldn't come through because the roads were then closed for the next day's stage. And it was the first time that I was then on closed roads. There was, you know, hundreds of caravans parked up the side of the road. And, you know, unfortunately it was raining. So, you know, there weren't people out there you know, drinking and celebrating and having fun like I imagine they would if it was, you know, sunny in summer. But it was, yeah, really special just to be on those roads and know that, you know, I'm ahead and the tour is coming through here tomorrow. And, yeah, I think that that's when things change in my mind because I sort of knew at this stage, you know, I'm ahead now and it's, you know, I just have to keep this lead. Well, I mean, who was the most kind of, I don't know, memorable person you met? Because I'm sure, like you said, on Von 2, people are passing you, you're passing people. And you probably want to stop because you probably met some interesting people, but at the same time, you're like, well, I got to keep going. Or, you know, you're riding with someone and they're riding too hard or too slow and you have a, a schedule to stick to. Did you meet yeah. some interesting people out on, out on the course? I did. And, but to be honest, I thought I would meet more people out on the roads, but I, I honestly think that's down to the weather. And I don't want to keep harping on about the weather, but you know, I don't blame people for not riding in, in the rain and the cold in the mountains. And what it did mean, though, was when I did finally come across someone, 
whether I caught them or whether they caught me, it was a you know, really nice just to sit and talk. And, you know, most times this happened, I didn't even mention what I was doing. I was just interested to hear about them and sort of have that interaction with somebody that I didn't know because the 10 days riding for 14, 15 hours a day alone, you know, I don't mind it, but it, it is nice to, to finally interact with someone and just, you know, being in a new country and, you know, hear different stories is cool. And I remember one day I was, I was actually sitting next to a guy on a gravel bike and he had, you know, 650 wheels on and thick tires and they were probably at 20 or 30 PSI. And he was, he was almost dropping me, but I was, I was so intent on just wanting to stick with him because I was just craving that interaction. And, you know, when he went his way and I went my way, it was, you know, Almost like, ah, damn, that's over. Um, but yeah, I was in good stead then for the rest of the day. Well, and were you listening to anything? I mean, that's a lot of time to be alone writing. Were you listening to, to podcasts, book on tape, music? I mean, I definitely don't have a music library deep enough to, to take me through that much writing. <laughs> yeah. but. I normally listen to a lot of music. And what, what was funny with this trip is I didn't listen to a lot of music. And I didn't listen, I don't normally listen to podcasts, but Tristan, the photographer that was with us, suggested a couple. And again, that was nice to break things up because it was you know, a person's voice that I was listening to. And in the past, I listened to audiobooks because I, I crave just listening to someone's voice. It's quite almost therapeutic. But I don't know what it is about this trip, why I didn't. I don't know if it was because you know, there's so much to see. There's so many different landscapes. And I was almost content just you know looking out and taking it all in it's like a bit of a sensory overload yeah i mean you had a crew alongside you you know filming and taking photos did you ever feel like there was a, a moment that you wanted to stop and take your own pictures or was it very much like right <laughs> that's their job they can take care of that i'm keeping my phone in my pocket and just going to keep keep riding there was so there was definitely times where i thought you know i need to mark this place on the map because i have to come back here and you know, some places because I didn't, I didn't really get a chance to watch the tour this year, so I never saw it on TV. And so there was places where I came across, and I thought, wow, like I'd love to see the helicopter footage of this, big canyons, or you know, just on the mountains. Like the day we climbed to to Teen, I think it is the stage that that Ben O'Connor won. I'd watched that stage because it was the day before we left, and and Tristan, who was with us, is good mates with Ben, and he happens to come from Perth, and. I knew what to expect on that day and that it was a you know, gorgeous landscape and actually riding it. We came to the top of the pass before team, I forget the name, and there was just e-bikes galore, mountain mountain bike e-bikes. And I thought, I have to come back here and, you know, I'll leave the road bike at home. I'm going to come and, you know, just take a e-mountain bike out and spend a week just exploring the mountains on an e-mountain bike. And, yeah, there's definitely places now that I have to go back to. Just, yeah, unfortunate the nature of this trip was that I couldn't really take it in as much as I would have liked to, but yeah, there's places I have to go back to. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that I realized during the tour is France is an amazingly beautiful and diverse country. And, you know, it's, it's relative. I mean, you come from Australia, I'm here in the States, you know, we have enormous landscapes. France is like a compact version of, of that. You know, you have these beautiful mountains and I remember, you know, you passed through the Massif Central and it's just like, wow, like this, it's, it's quiet and it's rural and there's these canyons and mountains and it's just absolutely stunning. And yeah. I did not, unfortunately, mark pins, but I, I should have, I guess I could go back and find a map and see these places that I, you know, wanted to go back to, I was, you know, riding along and you see a, a family on canoes or kayaks down in the river and you're like, Ooh, yeah. that looks, that looks enjoyable. Similar to your e-bike, you know, I would yeah. love to come back here with a mountain bike. <laughs> well, having, yeah. yeah. The French people are super like very outdoorsy as well. And I think being summer, like the days that we did have where it was sunny, like 
oh, it, like I got that real sense of like summer holidays and like families in camper vans. And I don't know, like in Australia, I never did that as a kid, but it, like seeing that now, I think like I'd love to go and do a holiday like that where you're literally in a camper van, you take, you know, like a canoe and, you know, just literally go and chill out. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the, that's the reason why the Tour de France is in July because it's, you know, a national holiday and that's what families do. You know, the, the big towns shut down and people go to the mountains and the lakes and the rivers and enjoy it, which is such a cool thing to see that they still, you know, and it's tied into yeah. the Tour de France so, so closely with people renting camper vans or, you know, they own one and they go to the mountains and stand on the side of the road and drink rosé and cheer people on. Yeah. It's so good to see. Well, I'm curious because you, you, both chased and then led the tour what do you prefer do you prefer chasing it and like trying to catch them or like you know because that's the that's the kind of the counter yeah. side is like once you're ahead you're like well they better not catch me because especially you know you said with road closures like you can't you can't slow down because then you're going to be kind of stuck potentially for a day or two what did you yeah. prefer like there's pros and cons right so chasing you sort of like a bit of i guess there's always that time pressure when you're chasing and i, I felt like the time pressure was more apparent when i was chasing because you know i knew that we had to get him on that second rest day so for that reason i say it was almost stressful chasing but then when you're in front it's it's almost like some of the buzz has worn off a bit you almost not lost the motivation, but, you know, you sort of achieved what you wanted to achieve, which is passing the tour. And at the same time, like, that's a that's a great feeling because, you know, you've achieved what you wanted to achieve, but you sort of, then that time pressure is off a little bit. So it's, I'd say there's like pros and cons to both, but yeah, it's got to be being in front of the tour, like, because then there are still people out on the roads, you know, there's towns that are excited for the tour to come through. And yeah, definitely... Looking back now, yeah, the easy answer is it's better being in front of the tour. Yeah. Kind of last question to kind of bring it full circle here. Having done it, having ridden the tour in half the amount of time that the race does it, did that change your relationship with the race, your appreciation for the race, your understanding for the race? I mean, what changed during that 10 days of, of you know, riding the Tour de France course? So the big thing for me was obviously having never been to the tour before as a spectator and only ever having watched the tour on TV. I don't think people understand how difficult the tour actually is. And just little things that I picked up on that, you know, I don't think the TV really shows is a lot of the sprint finishes at the end of the day are up an incline they're not flat and i think the tv often sort of represents them as well you see it from above or you see it from the side and it looks flat and i've just got so much more respect for the guys that are actually racing the tour day after day especially at the speeds that they're racing them that you know they're still so competitive with one another especially just given you know the difficulty of some of the finishes or you know as you say like there's the road furniture and yeah it's given me a whole lot of respect for those guys that that are they actually racing the tour? And yeah, that, that's probably the biggest thing I took away from it. Like it's it's no easy feat riding the Tour de France. And secondly, like France is an amazing place that there's so many cool places that I'd love to go back to. And I think like the Tour de France as an event for France is pretty special for the country. The young kids you see on the side of the road and young boys, young girls, young families, you know, there's older families there. There's people in their 70s and 80s. Like this is something that a whole country gets behind. And I think that's something pretty special that, that France has. So yeah, I'd say they're the two big takeaways that I took from it. Well, and to, to cap it off, you know, rolling onto the Champs-Élysées, which I'm sure you experienced is a horrible road. It is way rougher oh, than oh. it looks. <laughs> oh, man. But you had traffic as well. And when I did the tour, you know, we rode down the Champs and the next day we stayed in Paris and rented town bikes and I went and rode it again. I'm like, 
this is horrible. There's traffic yeah. and the road's rough and I'm on this, you know, junky town bike. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how, how did you find, you know, cause it's, it's so, I mean, it had to have been like, cool, I'm done. Like I made it to Paris. I'm on the Champs-Élysées yeah. and one of the most famous avenues in the world. And this road is rough and I just want to be done. You know, what was, was it satisfying making it there? Or was it also a little bit, not disappointing, but just like, anticlimactic no it was super satisfying like as you know like obviously you do seven odd laps of the the shumps but before that the sort of the the 60 odd k that exist on the sort of like rolling roads around around paris so obviously did those that sort of 60 or 70 k's alone and at this point i was pretty much over it i thought you know i just really want to get to the finish now like it had been a long transfer up from the previous sort of stage it was like a six hour transfer in the car and just in the van, you know, it was very difficult to get into Paris just being in a, you know, a three meter plus high van. And so when we got there, my mindset was, let's just get this done. You know, I'm sick of this. I just want to be finished and, you know, see loved ones and chat with family and things. But when I actually got to the shops, it was, it was super special because we'd actually been carrying a specialized Korea e-bike around the whole time with us because you know, we had a bit of a project that we wanted to shoot while in Paris on it. And what it meant was that I could ride one lap of the champs with everyone that was part of the team. So, you know, I've been living with these people for 10 days, but I haven't really had any real interaction with them just because I've been on the bike and they've been filming or you know, in the car. And so it was the first time that I actually got some one-on-one time with each person and we did a lap of the champs and it was, you know, that was sort of like a, like a special moment, like almost like a reward for them that they're a part of it too, because, you know, without the team, none of it happens. And it was, yeah, when that, when it got to that final lap of the champs, it was almost like a little bit sad that it was over at the same time. It was, yeah, it was great to sort of press stop on the Wahoo and, you know, secure that final stage and know that the, the job was done, but yeah, it was yeah, a great experience to wrap it up in the shumps and, and share that with everyone that was with me. Well, and was there a little bit of a come down? I know like after any, anyone does a huge yeah. endeavor like that, it's like the next day you wake up and you're like, wait, I don't have to do anything. <laughs> I don't have to put bike shorts yeah. on. I'm just like free. So to begin with, there wasn't much of a come down. It was like, oh, this is great. Like a bit of a sleep in and, you know, we can go out and have some nice food and, and relax. And then I'd say three days afterwards, the, the come down hit me and it was it was more like a bit of a lack of purpose because this had been a goal for so long that now that it was over, it was like, you know, what's next? How do I prepare for something now having having just done this? And I'd say that lasted for probably a week. And yeah, the, the trip away just to sort of clear my head was was exactly what I needed. And I'm, you know, now back in like a good space and like motivated for what's to come. But yeah, there definitely was that down period and you know, chatting to the to the doctor I see in in town here just to to keep on track of everything and make sure I'm sort of healthy and well. He said, you know, that's pretty normal. You've, you've essentially been smashing your endorphin system for, for 10 days and, you know, you don't really have any endorphins left in the body. So it's normal to feel a little bit down. And yeah, that made things easier just knowing that it wasn't all mental. It was actually, you know, something behind it. So yeah, I'm good to go again now. Well, what's next? You're going to chase the Giro, the Vuelta? <laughs> spring classics oh, who knows huh like I, i'm gonna go to portugal for a little while and i've got some some plans in portugal for later this year and we're actually we're looking at maybe moving to portugal next year just for some switch things up and yeah i've got a bit of a crazy idea for i guess a 20 week long project in portugal but yeah for now just some some easy days on the bike and slowly getting getting the love back for, for cycling awesome jack well thank you so much and uh Appreciate it. Congratulations. I'm, uh, yeah, that's, it's, it's really impressive what you did and I'm glad you got to experience it all. You got to finish, 
you know, and that you were able to do so and walk away with, with a new appreciation for the race and understanding of it, but also just realizing that people can ride the tour in their own way. And that's, that's probably what I respect most about it is that you made it yours and it's unique. It's an awesome thing to, to see happen. And I'm sure you'd love to encourage other people to, to go do it as well, whether it's 10 days, whether it's three weeks, whether it's, you know, three months, get out there and, and do it. For sure. Now it's been fun actually chatting back about it because, you know, a couple of weeks has passed now and it's nice to relive it all. And yeah, it's, Still, yeah, still sinking in, I guess. So it's, yeah, it's been fun, mate. Awesome, Jack. Well, I'll let you get back to your day over there in Spain and uh, I'm sure we'll catch up soon. Stay safe, stay healthy. And uh, yeah, we'll speak soon. Cheers, boss. Chat soon, man. Well, there we have it, folks. Another episode of Breakfast with Boz being served by Wahoo. I hope you enjoyed today's show and my conversation with Jack Thompson, talking about him chasing down the Tour de France. The entire race in 10 days is quite a feat. But if anything, it reminds us and opens our eyes to realize that we can all do the Tour de France in our own unique way. So with that, folks, stay safe, stay healthy, and I'll catch you back here next time. Breakfast with Boz being served by Wahoo.